You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. In the book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, uh, we follow a character named Christian. And along the way, he encounters many different people. And one of the people he travels along with is Hopeful. And while Christian and Hopeful, they end up spending the night in a, a piece of land. And the land belongs to a character named Giant Despair. And he finds them sleeping and gathers them both up and brings them into his dungeon in Doubting Castle. And there Christian and Hopeful are really tormented in their spirits. Because there they, they are, they are beaten uh, uh, and they are told to end their own lives. And they are totally at their wits end as it were. In this dungeon of giant despair in Doubting Castle. But just like Paul and Silas, while they were in prison, Christian and Hopeful, they began begin to, to pray to God. And it is in their praying, because it looks like a lost case stuck in this dungeon where giant despair is going to kill them. Where they remembered the key called promise. In other words, as they prayed, they remembered the key called promise, God's word. They prayed and remembered God's word and they were able to escape. And in our doubting, it can feel as though we are in the dungeon of Doubting Castle, where there seems to be no means of escape, where we forget all that has gone on. We feel broken and beaten and down, but we need to remember the key called promise. God's word, Jesus, through prayer. And tonight in Satisfaction 101, Really, the, the title is, I have big doubts about God. And it's maybe something that you have said or have heard others say. But for some of you, it might seem like a massive nagging doubt. And then for others, it might be a small niggling doubt. Because doubts, although they often maybe start small, they can get bigger and bigger and bigger. And when it comes to doubt, it can be really hard to admit doubt. Especially if you are a Sunday school teacher or a leader or someone who everyone thinks has walked with Jesus for a very long time. How can we admit to doubt? Why are we almost embarrassed to admit to doubt? Why does it seem so wrong and dirty? Well, we think of doubt as the opposite of faith. But doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith or belief in Jesus. Doubts are there, yes, they are not the opposite of belief, but they can lead to unbelief. See, just as every unbeliever has faith in something, every believer has doubts. Because what is doubt? It is a feeling of being uncertain. And that feeling of uncertainty in our, in our faith is real. So the first thing I just want us to, to know tonight is that there is realism of doubt. There is a realism of doubt. Having doubts is often something hard to admit and talk about. But in the Christian life, although it's not often spoken of, you wouldn't be alone if you had a doubt tonight. Sooner or later, any Christian who thinks will feel an unsettling, uncertain feeling of doubt. Some might struggle with intellectual questions. 
How do I really know God exists? How can I be sure Jesus is the only way to heaven? Some of us might struggle whenever there's all this suffering in the world. How can God be good? You see, for some, you've heard, you've read, you've watched something that has raised intellectual questions. An article suggesting that a Bible is not trustworthy or contradicts itself or it's not relevant for today's world. Or doubts around illness and suffering. Why does God allow that to happen? Or even doubts in your personal life. From who you married to your personal faith. Struggling because someone you knew doesn't know Jesus. And while they've died and judgment awaits. Or struggling with a sin in our own hearts. Doubting that your salvation is secure. We have all these doubts and we could go on and on and on. And tonight we cannot answer everybody's doubts specifically. Yet at the same time we can. Because it all has the same antidote if you like. We want to help you in your doubts. We want to prescribe Jesus to our doubts. Doubt is a real thing. So please don't think that you're alone in it. Others have doubts too. Not all be the same. Not all at the same time. At certain moments in different parts of our lives. Some are massive questions. Others are small and niggling. You see, doubt, it will steal our joy from the Christian life. It will steal our joy from following Jesus. It will dampen our joy. It will make us apprehensive and cautious in following Jesus. And it will prevent us from knowing that full blessings there are in following Jesus. God does not want his people to be doubters. There's a realism to doubt though. It is a real thing. But although it is real, there's also dangers to doubt. Doubts, although real, they are not neutral. So doubt is not unbelief, but left unattended. It can lead to unbelief. And doubt is really natural in our faith. It comes about because really of our human weakness and frailty. That we do not trust God wholly and fully. We lack confidence to fully trust in our God. We need to learn to take doubt seriously. Yet be relaxed about it. That it doesn't make our whole world crumble in. Yes, doubts are real and common. But they are not neutral. We don't overreact to doubts as if our whole world is collapsing in before us. But at the same time. We aren't to be totally flippant about doubts. Doubts are real and they are dangerous. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we have the first planted seed of doubt. There the serpent says, did God really say? Casting into question what God's word had been spoken. And when we doubt, Satan loves to plant that seed of doubt in our minds. He wants to attack us. And what are these dangers of doubt? Rachel Jones highlights four of these dangers of doubts. Things that Satan likes to whisper in our ears. First thing he loves to whisper in our ears is no one feels like this. Whenever you're doubting, Satan will tell you no one else is doubting. No one else is feeling the way you're doing. Don't be silly. No one else feels like this. He will tell you that you shouldn't be talking about your doubts. But really, we should. Other people will feel like this. 
He said, they'll speak wisely to someone we trust. Jude 22, we're told to be merciful to those who doubt. So approach someone who has spiritual maturity, faithfulness, who is merciful. Satan will tell us no one feels like this. No one has felt like this. But Satan is lying to us. Of course, others feel like this in doubting. Second thing he loves to whisper is, you can't talk to God about this. Satan will tell us that God doesn't want to know our doubts. He doesn't want to hear from us. He won't listen to us. But the reality is, God already knows our doubts. God already knows our minds. God already knows what we're thinking. God already knows our actions. Satan will tell us we have to take God out of it, but God will not listen to us. But that is not the case. For how many times in the Psalms, for example, does the psalmist cry out to God? Cry out because of his own sin, but also because God feels so far away. In those moments of doubt, don't you feel far away from God? We call it, we can and should call out to God in prayer, in our doubt, with our doubt, because he already knows our doubt. Praying that God, by his grace, and mercy would strengthen us in our faith. The third line Satan will tell us is, you'll not get an answer. Whatever doubt you have, what questions going round in your mind, Satan will tell you that you will never, ever, ever get a satisfactory answer. It's not even worth it. You'll not even get an answer for it. See, doubts, although they can be intellectual or doctrinal, what God's word says, or experiential, what we've experienced no matter what our doubt is satan will tell us that you'll never find an answer that there will never be a satisfactory answer he doesn't want you to go looking because there will be someone in all probability that has thought about it before because yes others have felt like you have too others have thought they couldn't talk to god about it and but they've went and thought about it from a Christian perspective. Satan will tell you you'll never get an answer. But he's lying to us. And the fourth line Satan will tell us when it comes to doubting and our faith. Just forget about it. Just forget about this faith altogether. Is it really worth it? All the effort and the, uh, and the pain you're putting yourself through. Satan wants us to stop following Jesus. So in doubt, he might be prompting us to put in our, the brakes on in our faith, just forget about it, to hop out of the car and go off some other direction, making us think to ourselves, is it really worth it? How do we respond? Well, we just persevere. We keep going, keep going, following Jesus, day by day, step by step. Doubt is real. Doubt is dangerous because it's an avenue in which Satan can attack. So how can we be dealing with doubt? And this is where we now turn to God's word in John chapter 6 as we consider how to deal with doubt. What will help us deal with doubt? Another sign? Imagine you are chatting away to a friend or a colleague or someone you haven't seen in a while and they're telling you this story and it does seem a little bit far-fetched but as they tell the story you're like no way I don't believe it but then the next thing is they pull out their mobile phone 
and they show you a picture or that message or that video that proves their story to be true. It's evidence or proof or a sign that their story they've told is true. And in the world of science, scientists with their new discovery or new results, they will want to see more and more, more experiments or new experiments to gather more evidence or to point to prove this is true. We get this kind of thinking in our own faith and our own walk from time to time too. It can be really tempting for us to think if we just had a little bit more proof, it would be easier for us in our doubts. See, some so-called churches will put the emphasis off God's word and onto a new word or sign. A new sign, another sign. But we must be careful to stick to the word. See, there's an idea that another sign would help us in our doubt. We think that if God, if he would just show us a little more something, that would be far better than me having to think about this or to deal with my doubt. Just another sign will do, we say. But even when Jesus was walking on the earth, people had a hard time believing who he was. In John 6, it begins with the remarkable story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish. And even how Jesus goes about that, it echoes really strongly of God's people in the wilderness and how the Lord provided bread for them. It's an amazing, remarkable miracle, or as John calls them, signs, that Jesus performs. And then Jesus, well, he walks on water, he gets to the other side of the lake, and the crowds find him again. And that's where we started our reading in verse 25. And they ask and ask and ask Jesus, don't they? Verse 25, they find him and they ask him. In verse 28, they ask him again. And in verse 30, they ask him yet again. And what do they ask for? They ask for another sign so that they would believe what Jesus has said. Jesus has said uh, that they must believe. The work of God is this, in verse 29, to believe in the one he has sent. And they're asking for a sign that they might believe. Because the Lord before has given them manna from heaven in the wilderness and they want another sign. But what did they just witness the day before? The feeding of the 5,000. Yet they are demanding another sign. They do not believe Jesus, even though he's already revealed himself to them. Jesus tells them what they must do. Believe in the one sent. Believe in me. And sometimes we want another sign. In other words, we want Jesus to show something else to us, even though he already has, through his holy word, which he has breathed out for us. Will another sign help us in our doubting? No. Turn to God's word and believe. Another sign will not help, but what about an easier teaching? Will that help us in our doubt? Whenever I started chemistry uh, at Queen's, one of the modules we had to do in first year was a, a maths module. And there was two modules. There was a hard maths module and the easy maths module. And Really, the easy maths module was just A-level maths, and the harder one was further maths, uh, basically, as a module. And 
if you didn't, if you did maths after GCSE, you're automatically put into the hard a maths class. But my friend Ruth, who I've known for years and went to school with, she did maths after GCSE, and she was in the hard maths class. But Ruth's attitude is, you don't ask, you don't get. So she asked to be put in the easier maths class and she succeeded. She was able to get the easier teaching, the easier module. And, well, no one else was able to follow suit. They soon caught on. Ruth wanted the easier teaching and, well, don't we all? As John 6 continues... Jesus explains to his disciples what he means when he says, I am the bread of life. He, he fleshes it out literally that his flesh and blood are there for us to live. And then in verse 60, the people say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? It is hard to understand, yes. It's even harder to accept. And in Jesus' days on earth, in his, the years and centuries that have followed, God's word, Jesus' teaching, has always been hard to accept. We see people who want to be part of the church, who want to change the teachings of Jesus, to make a, a little bit more palatable for today's culture. People who change the hard meaning of scripture to fit their agenda or ideology or their corruption too. People who deliberately distort scripture because they want an easier meaning. You see, it is a hard teaching that Jesus is the only way, truth and life. It's much easier to say that Jesus doesn't matter. Jesus is just one way among many others. It's a hard teaching that a God of justice would judge people. It'd be easier teaching that God is just love and will forgive everybody. It's a hard teaching that sex is only between one man and one woman. It's easier to say that it doesn't matter anymore. Jesus' teaching might be hard to accept and uncomfortable at times for us, but it is right and it is true. Whenever Jesus' teaching is different to the culture, often many get carried up away in the momentum of the culture and it's easy to be brought in and think that Jesus' teaching is not true or good. For how many of our doubts are related to the difficulties we find in God's words? So because the world and culture thinks that, doesn't mean we need an easier teaching. So in verse 61 and 64, we're told that God's word is full of life and of spirit. Jesus says in verse 63, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There's more to the reality of this world than what we see. There's the physical and the spiritual. There's the seen and the unseen. There's under the sun and above the sun. Jesus is describing something that cannot be explained by science or doesn't need to be. But spiritual life is given by the Spirit. And this is important for us to remember when we're wrestling with doubts. Doubts won't fade when we put our fingers in our ears and ignore them. Or turning away from the Christian faith. What are we to do? We are to go to turn to the words that give life. We turn to the words that give life. We keep reading the Bible. We keep coming to church, hearing the, the scriptures explained. Even when it seems it's not doing anything for you, asking that God would speak through his word. We do not need an easier teaching because Jesus' teaching 
are the words of life. Will another sign help us in our doubt? No. Turn to God's word and believe. Will an easier teaching help us in our doubt? No. We turn to God's word and believe. How do we deal with doubt? Belief. If we believe Jesus, we can know for sure we have life. In Romans 10 verse 9, if we confess, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've repented and trust Jesus as Lord, the Father has enabled you to do that. Doubt in our Christian life is to be expected and it shouldn't be embraced. You remember how Thomas doubted after Christ's resurrection. What does Jesus say to him? Stop doubting and believe. We are to believe with our hearts. We cannot let the feelings of uncertainty or any feelings dictate us our faith. Because faith is not a feeling but a belief. And we have great comfort in having faith in Jesus even in our doubting. That is why we need to turn to Christ and his word in our doubts, in the good times and the bad times. In verse 65, Jesus says that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. If you trust Jesus, the Father has enabled you. It's meant to give us assurance despite all our doubts from questioning God's ways or going our own way with our own sin or our suffering. These words are meant to comfort us. Because if you turn back to verse 37, Jesus says, All those the Father gives me will come to me. And he ever comes to me, I will never drive away. In your doubting, we ever worried that God would dismiss you? That God would drive you away because you doubt? That God would, I know, put you to the side in the scrap of tape? No, no, no. He takes us off the scrap of tape. He brings us. He will never drive us away. He enables us to come to him in our doubting, in our sin, in our failures, in our brokenness, in our suffering. He enables us to come. If you have faith in Jesus, profess his name with your lips and in your heart, he will not drive you away. Our salvation does not depend on our feelings. Our salvation does not depend on our absence of doubts. Jesus will never drive me away. I am a Christian. Not because of my background or where I'm from or my actions. But because God has enabled me. Because God has called me. There will be people who follow Jesus for a bit and walk away. And we see this in verse 66. And maybe a situation like that has dented your confidence, as it were, or your feelings, left you confused or scared or anxious, but you would do the same. But when that happens, what are we to do? We just believe. Just because others fall away doesn't mean that you will. We keep walking with Jesus and believe. Will another sign help us in our doubts? No. We turn to Christ and his word and believe. Will an easier teaching help us in our doubt? No, we turn to God's word and believe. 
Will belief in Jesus help us in our doubt? Oh yes. That's exactly what we need. And is there anywhere else? Is there anywhere else we can turn to in our doubt? Or anyone else? Look at what Peter says in verse 67. Sorry, verse 68. Lord, Jesus asks, firstly, do you not want to leave too? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else is there to go? Except our Saviour Jesus. We can compare Jesus to the alternatives. And that actually might be useful because you'll see them all as insignificant and foolish and useless compared to our Saviour. Whenever we are doubting, there is nowhere else to turn but Jesus. Whenever we are doubting, we might be tempted to ask and ask and ask, Lord, if I could only see another piece of evidence or another sign. Lord, if only your word didn't say that, then it would be much easier. Or, Lord, I'd just go follow someone else. No, we don't do any of those things. The only way to deal with doubt is to believe in Jesus. Jesus is the only option that makes sense to us. Jesus is the only hope. There is nothing else in this world worth having except him. Because he is the only word, the only one whose word gives life. He's the only one who can give us life. Another sign will not help us. An easier teaching will not help us. There is nowhere else to turn. Believe in Jesus. And that will help us in our doubts. We turn to God's words and believe. I'd like to just very quickly finish off our time together with practically dealing with doubt. Because in these times of doubt or difficulties or trials, our faith can be really tested and our beliefs about God revealed in those moments of doubt and of trial. Maybe it's hard for us to think about how we would practically help ourselves or others. But when we are overcome with these doubts or troubles, we need the correct perspective, which we thought a little bit about last week. Perspective for our minds and relief for our hearts. We need to realign our worldview in line with God's word. See, with all our doubts, our lies, our discussions that we might have, it all goes back to the empty tomb. Our faith stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. Whenever I left university, I lived in a house with some friends. And one of the, the guys was a missionary kid in Pakistan, mostly another missionary kid in India. And we were chatting one night and how you, you know, mission evangelism in their context and so on. And with all the discussions that they would have with different religions, with Muslims, with people of the Hindi belief system, they always just said, we want to get people back to the cross and the tomb. We always want to get back people back to the tomb because our faith stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. 
You see, if Jesus remains, remained dead, he would be just another man. But he's not just another man because he is risen. All that he has said came to be. All of God's word can be relied upon. From the forgiveness of sin through to our moral code and conduct. So when you are doubting, what are we to go back to? What are we to remind ourselves of? It's the empty tomb. The empty tomb we remind ourselves of in that truth. And we rest in it. You see, I think doubts, although they are real and dangerous, I think doubts develop disciples. Doubts develop disciples. You see, God already knows that we are doubters. He knows all the thinkings in my brain and in my heart, all my sin and my doubts. Our calling is not to pretend that we have no doubts, but to walk with Jesus. To trust Jesus even with our doubts. How do we go about? How can we help ourselves in doubting? How can we practically deal with doubt? Well there's a number of ways. But Alistair McGrath, he says this. Doubt will become unbelief because you allowed it to. Feed your doubts and your faith will starve. But feed your faith and your doubts will starve. So how can we starve our doubts and feed our faith? How do we do that? What's well, the, the means of grace as we talk about the sacraments of communion and baptism. We witness those we see the gospel presentation. But we need to pray. We need to ask God for his help to strengthen our faith. That we might be bold enough to ask others for help. That we would have a greater understanding of the gospel message. A greater realisation of the empty tomb and the consequences for believers. We need to read God's word. We need to read the scriptures. Because those are the words that contain life and life everlasting. To hear it explained through sermons. But we also can do it through fellowship. Asking older, wiser Christians about your doubts. Asking them and speaking with them. See if they can help you put your eyes back on Jesus. You can bring your doubts to others, us as pastors. Because we are concerned with your spiritual health from what we preach Sunday by Sunday. But it also includes spending time with our people in their doubts. So why not arrange to meet us? It might well help you. Jude 22 says be merciful to those who doubt and well that's what you will find when you come to us in fact i suspect that older wiser christian that you respect and love you'll find them merciful to you who doubt because as you love them they love you too and ultimately in all our doubting in all things we need to be looking to jesus hebrews 12 says to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Remembering that we are creatures created by God. And we're trying to understand in our doubting the magnificent, marvellous, splendour, power and holiness of our creator. There was a man named Campbell Morgan. And when he preached his first sermon at 13 years of age. And while he went on and he preached occasionally on Sundays quite often. But he went on to be a teacher. 
But at 23 years of age, he left the teaching profession. Why? Well, he says he was attacked by doubts about the Bible. For at that time, uh, in the 1880s especially, he was attacked by doubt because the writings of various scientists and agnostic people, for example, Charles Darwin, they disturbed him and troubled him. He read their books, listened to their debates, and he became more and more perplexed. What did he do? He cancelled all preaching engagements. He put all books in a cupboard and locked the door. Then he went down to the bookstore and bought a new Bible. And he said, I said to myself, I am no longer sure that this is what my father claims it to be. His father was a preacher too. The word of God. But of this I am sure, if it be the word of God, if I come to it with an unprejudiced open mind, it will bring me assurance of my soul itself. The result, the Bible find me, said Campbell Morgan. Campbell Morgan would go on to become ordained minister at 27. D.L. Moody would invite him to preach and would take over D.L. Moody's role. And then he would end up back in England, Westminster Chapel in London, where Martin Lloyd-Jones would follow him in ministry. What did Campbell Morgan do with all of his doubting? He continued to turn to Jesus and his word. Doubts are to be expected, but continue to walk in our faith in Jesus, seeking his help from prayer and his word, which brings life and the fellowship of God's people, whom he enabled to come to him. He enabled us to come to him and he will never Drive us away. We are secure. Christ will lose not a single one of his flock. Because our faith is not dependent on our doubts or our good works. But on the empty tomb. Because of the risen Jesus.